0: of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters. Lord's Day 11 of the Heidelberg Catechism is clearly a product of its time. It's written a few decades after the Reformation, more than 400 years ago. Catechism refutes here the doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church concerning the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. What happened? Well, the church had deviated from the word of God. The Roman Catholic Church taught that man in some way could cooperate in his own salvation. God has to do something for our salvation, and man also has to do something. But that's not true. The Bible clearly teaches that we cannot lift as much as a finger without the will of God. Certainly, we cannot do anything either for our own salvation. Furthermore, if that were the case, then Jesus would not be a complete Savior either, but only half a Savior, which in the end is not really a Savior. And that's not all. The church came to teach not only that your own good works can save you, but also that there are some people who have so many good works that they have enough left over for others to draw from. Some of those exceptional people were canonized as saints. And now supposedly they are particularly qualified to intercede with God On your behalf. The greatest saint of all, according to Roman Catholic theology, is Mary, the mother of Jesus. She, of all the saints, is able to stand between God and man in order to plead on your behalf. And now you may say to yourself, well, I know all that, and I'm glad I'm not Roman Catholic, I'm glad that I know the Bible and that I don't make my salvation dependent on human efforts. I know that my salvation depends on Christ alone. However, let's be careful. Let's look at ourselves. It's always easier to point fingers at others. The problem is that by nature you and I are prone to repeat that same thing. Error. Toward the end of his life, Martin Luther, the great reformer, once said, If you were to cut me open and dissect my heart, you will find a pope in there. That's quite a profound and insightful statement. Luther fought against papism all his life, but he realized that by nature, it's not any different. By nature, we want to do as the Roman Catholics do, namely to have man play a role in his own salvation. But that's wrong. That's what I will preach to you about this afternoon. Summarize the text as follows We confess the only Savior, Jesus Christ. Look at three things Jesus as Savior, secondly, Jesus as the only Savior finally, Jesus as the complete Savior. First, and Jesus as Savior. When Mary and Joseph's child was born in Bethlehem, he had to have a name. All children need to have a name. But the parents of Jesus did not have to look for one. Joseph and Mary did not look at a birthday book of names to see which name they would prefer. not something that was done in those days. When parents picked a name for their child in those days, they picked one that had a specific meaning. The name had to convey certain circumstances or characteristics or kinship. Names were not chosen because they sounded nice, as is often the case today. However, Mary and Joseph did not have to name that child at all. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph and told him, You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. In Hebrew, the name was actually Joshua. But because the New Testament is written in Greek, his name was Jesus. Same thing we would have today. In French, the name John would be Jean. And in Dutch, it would be Jan. But, in fact, it's the same name. The name Joshua, or Jesus, was actually a common name. Many boys were given that name. And yet, that is the name they are told to give this child by no other than the angel Gabriel himself. To have that child bear that name was important enough for the Lord God to send an angel both to Mary and later separately to Joseph and to specifically tell them that that's the name he is to bear, Jesus. And once you realize the true significance of that name, then you will also know why. Well, that name has a wonderful content and has quite a history in Israel. The name Joshua, Jesus, Jesus, comes from the Hebrew root yasha. The original meaning of the word is to make room. It is the opposite of the word to constrict or to hem in. Someone who is in trouble is in a tight spot. He is constricted. And if he is badly in trouble, then there is nowhere he can turn. No matter which way he turns, he will come to harm. Now then the only way to give that such a person can, can, get, can get out of his predicament is to give him space. The more room he has, the more freedom he has. And so by giving someone room, you rescue him, you save him, you redeem him. And there you have the basic concept of salvation. Joshua to give room, save, set free, to rescue. Let's see how that name functioned in the history of the redemption of God's people. We all know who the first Joshua in the Old Testament is. Joshua, the son of Nun. He was the right hand of Moses and later became his successor. Joshua was a man who did his utmost to live up to the reality of his name. That is clear from his life from the beginning to the end. First, we are introduced to him right after the exile as the successful military commander in the battle against Amalek. People of Israel were in a tight spot. Their movement is restricted. The Amalekites stand in their way. And Joshua is the one who gives them space. Through his military leadership, they are saved, their enemy. The next time we encounter him in the pages of the Bible, we are told that he accompanied Moses up to the mountain where he received the Ten Words of the Covenant, the Ten Commandments. Joshua is reminded that ultimately salvation is through the law Of God. You must trust in God alone and do as He commands. And that's what He does, as He, together with 11 other spies, is sent out into the land of Canaan to spy it out to see where the fortifications are. The other 10 spies are overwhelmed by the strength of the enemy. But not Joshua and Caleb. Joshua affirms the Lord saves. He trusts in God. He trusts that God will deliver his people from the hands of their enemies. He will not constrict you. He will not leave them in the desert. No, the Lord will give them room and defeat the enemies. And indeed, his trust in God was not misplaced. As successor of Moses, he eventually led the people Israel into the Promised Land. And there, with God's help, he defeated the heathen nations. The walls of Jericho came tumbling down. Joshua, the Lord saves. The Old Testament also knows another Joshua. Joshua, the son of Jozadak who lived some uh, a thousand years later than Joshua, the son of Nun. Together with Zerubbabel, the civil leader, he rebuilt the temple and he restored worship. He was instrumental in bringing the people back from exile. As the first high priest after the exile, this Joshua, son of Josedak, had a most important function. For you know why Israel was sent into exile, don't you? It was to discipline them. Their fathers had not kept God's commandments. They had done horrible things. And now when that small remnant does return from the foreign lands, they have to be reminded of their sins and the great pollution that clung to them. Zechariah 3, which we just read together, The pollution of the people is symbolized by Joshua the high priest himself. Joshua represented the people. He acts as an intermediary, as a mediator between God and the people. In that chapter, the prophet Zechariah sees Joshua standing before the Lord's angel. Satan stands there ready to accuse him. Joshua is in a tight spot, for it is clear for all to see that he, along with the people whom he represents, is as guilty as can be. His sins are indicated by the fact that his clothes are filthy, as it says in the text. He and the people have polluted themselves with every sin imaginable. They have been into every nook and cranny of this sinful world. But then something wonderful happens. We read that the angel said to those who were standing there before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And then he said to Joshua that he has taken his iniquity, his sins away from him, and that he will clothe him with. Pure vestments, in other words, with impeccably clean clothes, and they will also put a clean turban on his head. Brothers and sisters, as I said, he stands there as intermediary between God and the people. For not only is he saved from his sins, no, also God's people are saved from their sins so you see now the significance of that name jesus joshua savior that name reminds the people of the fact that the lord god saves his people from their sins it also means that he saves them from their enemies as long as they trust in him and do his will, he will rescue them from those who mean them harm. He will not hem them in. He will give them the promised land where they can enjoy freedom, where they can enjoy his goodness. And he will give them the freedom back in the land of Israel after the exile. And that is the name that was reserved for the Son of God, from eternity. So that's who he is. Savior of the world. But this Jesus, what exactly does he save us from? What does it mean that he saves us from our sins? Well, brothers and sisters, it means ultimately that he saves us from death. Because of sin, we have nowhere to turn. We cannot escape death. In that regard, think of prisoners in a prison who are in an enclosed space. They have done all kinds of horrible things. Some men are murderers. They have done horrible things to other people, defrauded others. And now, sometimes we have missionaries that go into those prisons and they tell them about how they can be set free through Jesus, through the saving work of Jesus Christ. That's a very powerful message. Also for those who are in prison, for ultimately we are all in a certain prison of our own sin. So, in that sense, you may think of a drowning person or someone in a burning house. If you leave such a person by himself, then he would die, wouldn't he? He does not know how to get himself out of that terrible situation. Now, someone comes along and throws him a rope or jumps into the water and he pulls him out or he pulls him out of that burning house and he saves that person from certain death. Now, that's their salvation. He is saved from certain death so that he can live. Well, congregation, that's what Jesus does. Because of sin, we face Certain death. That's what the Lord God said already to Adam when he sinned. He said, As soon as you disobey me, you will certainly die. And now God, His Son, saves us from certain death. What a wonderful message. Does that not fill you with joy, brothers and sisters? I know you've heard it lots of times. But it is still a powerful message each time. You have to picture that. What God has done for us. We are sinners. I'm a sinner. And those are not just words that apply to Adam. and These are not just words that apply to some horrible criminal. No, they apply to you and they apply to me. And we can readily understand the concept of the death penalty or a Ted Bundy, or a Clifford Olsen, or a Paul Bernardo. A lot of the older people will know who they are. These were horrible men. They did horrible things. And these cold-blooded killers deserve to die. But what about us? Do we really deserve to die? Don't we have some goodness in us? Do we really deserve the death penalty? And the answer is yes, we do. There's no doubt about it. And we confess that on the basis of the Scriptures. God has to reveal that to us. And only Christ, Jesus Christ, can save us from certain death. brings us to the second point. I don't have to tell you that most people do not accept that judgment from God. They don't really feel the conviction of their sins. You won't find the word sin in any of today's newspapers or news organizations as you find them on the internet. You don't hear that word. They talk about mistakes or whatever. They don't see either that their sins hem them in. A don't really feel all that constricted. And they think that they can save themselves or that there, that there are other things that can save them. Now, if it weren't for the Scriptures, that's also how you and I would feel. See, that's our nature. For there are many things which in our sinful eyes can save us. Um, To an unbeliever, the grave saves him. An unbeliever does not believe in life hereafter. They think that when you die, you become like the dust of the earth. You cease to exist totally. That's the way it is. That's why euthanasia to an unbeliever is the most natural thing. You don't see a way out anymore, then you should end it all. Me. Not be that you, It may not even be that you have a terminal, in, endless, that you just have illness, you just have to be tired of living. And then you can end it all by snuffing, it, snuffing out your own life. Death frees you from this broken world. It gives you the ultimate space, so they think. But we know something else, don't we? We know that there's life after death. And those who do not believe in the life hereafter will certainly find themselves in a tight spot. What a surprise they will have, right? They will end up in hell. You know, that sounds harsh, but that's what God reveals to us in his word because that's what we all deserve. And there, no matter where they turn, they will be in constant pain. They will not be able to be rescued from there. Salvation is will not be possible for them. And then there are also those who pretend to be believers. They say that they believe in a God who has created all things. But they don't think that a personal relationship with God is necessary. All you have to do is to be as good as you can, and God will accept you. They go out from the premise that your works save you. And then there are those who believe in all kinds of gods. It doesn't matter to which one you adhere, whether it is Buddha or Allah or the Great Spirit in the sky or Jesus Christ. It's all the same. It doesn't matter which god you believe in. No, a few. Some time ago, I attended a graduation ceremony. One of the officials read the creed of that particular university, and the Creed expresses its belief in the God of nature. It gives God a name such as the Great Spirit. It says that he cares as much about each animal as he does about each human being. It does not identify the God of the Scriptures, but gives room for all kinds of worship of other gods. As long as these gods make sense to you, you can worship them. That's the creed of the world, isn't it? But what do the Bible what does the Bible teach us? Scriptures claim that there's only one God, and only He can save you. And the way to God is through Jesus Christ. He is the only Savior. There is no other. Listen to what the apostle Peter claimed before the council of the Jews as he makes his defense in front of them and he knows he might be killed because of that confession. But he says to them, and there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven among men by which we must be saved. Acts 4 verse 12. Write a statement. How do you back that up? Peter, of course, appealed to the scriptures. For all the prophecies point to Christ. So Peter says in his first letter, he says, concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit in Christ in them was indicated when he predicted the suffix of Christ and the subsequent glories. No, there's not a religion in the world that claims salvation through Jesus Christ alone. All other other religions, in one way or the other, want to honor man. They do not preach the concept of redemption as the Christian religion. The true religion has it. And that is because all other religions are man-made. And man, left to himself, is blind. He does not realize the terrible predicament that he is in. Salvation to the man of the world is rescue from immediate danger. By nature, we are very short-sighted. So whatever is a danger right now, he wants to be saved from right now. He finds all kinds of ways and all kinds of things to make that happen. For example, he wants to be safe from poverty. So, what does he do? Well, one of the things he will do is to rebel. He wants to try to find ways to limit the power and influence of rich men, or the rich oppress the poor. Of course, that's indeed often the case. In many cases, that is not so, but that is certainly a reality that we have to deal with in this world. However, is that what man needs to be saved from? Through that, the scriptures speak out against the rich who oppress others. The injustices in the world are an abomination to God. The fact that there's poverty all over the world is a terrible shame. And as Christians, we should do everything we can to alleviate it. But ultimately, salvation is not found in material well-being, but always in spiritual well-being. The world sees salvation only on a horizontal level. They don't see their own sins. And so they do not realize how badly they need to be rescued from their sins. But if you remain in your sins, you will certainly die an eternal death. So, isn't it wonderful to be together again this afternoon, brothers and sisters? For here, from this pulpit, is spoken to you about the way to life, eternal life. Here we speak about the only Savior, Jesus Christ. us to the third point. Namely, that is not just our only Savior, but he is also our complete Savior. As I said at the beginning of this sermon, we are at heart little popes. That's to say, by nature, we want to add to our own salvation. We want to have a role in it. Well, it's true that we have a role to play, but not in order to add anything to our own salvation. Look at what the Catechism says. It says that one of two things must be true. Either Jesus is not a complete Savior, or those who by true faith accept this Savior must find in him all that is necessary for their salvation. Brothers and sisters, we are totally helpless without God. As I said in the beginning of the sermon, The Roman Catholic Church teaches that you can also have saints mediate for you with the Father. They still teach that. That's why they pray to their many saints. In the museum, there's a good illustration on how this was done a few centuries ago. That museum had a type of machine which had all kinds of buttons on it. If you push down on the one button then a light would shine by the name of one of the saints. With the button Mariners, the light under the name of St. Nicholas would go on. St. Nicholas is the saint of Mariners and merchants. And if you push the button for healing of sickness, then the light would illuminate under the name of St. Lucas. And so there is a saint for every situation. When you pray to such a saint... Now you can be assured that he will put in a good word for you with God. Ultimately, it's blasphemous. But now, again, let's not think that we are immune from this kind of theology. You see, we also tend to cling to various kinds of saviors, of saints. There's a lot of competition for saviors in our lives. The world today is full of great names who promise prosperity and luck. They're the politicians, for example. They promise to save you from all kinds of evils. They promise to save you from evil corporations. They promise to save you from the polluters of this world. They promise to eradicate the terrorists and to give you freedom to do whatever you want. They promise you the moon. And man tends to want to believe those saviors, because otherwise they think they're in the bad spot. And we're not immune from that kind of thinking. We have also other saviors in our lives, people who are important to us. Sometimes we think that our parents can save us, or the minister. Nobody can save us, except Jesus Christ. We can only be instruments to lead you to Christ. For we do need to be rescued from the evil elements in society. So man does have to put in place law and order. But if you want to look for true deliverance, then you always look to God who has everything in his hands. The Lord Jesus wants to be your savior your only Savior, your complete Savior. He wants you to rely, to depend on Him. Always. And in the first place. And He does not want you and me to be anxious about your life. Catechism, however, doesn't just speak about salvation. It also speaks of something else. Question 30 asks, Do those who seek their salvation or well-being in saints, in themselves, or anywhere else, also believe in the only Savior, Jesus? And the answer is a resounding no. So, let me ask you, I ask myself the same question, is that true of you? For example, how many of you are sitting here dreaming of that day that you will be financially independent, having no more debt load, you think to yourself, would it ever be great? Would it ever give me a lot of freedom? It's not wrong in itself. Except if you think that that is going to bring you happiness, if that is what drives you in life, well, then you are not really seeking your well-being from God, are you? And... You and I are very inclined to think these things. We all do it. Teenager says, if only I was married and out of the house, then things are going to be great. Or someone else thinks, if only I didn't have such an affliction, then things will be wonderful. You plug in the words yourself. What is it for you? If only you add, well, our well-being, brothers and sisters, and we may never lose sight of that, depends on Christ alone and no other. All the other things are to be put very much on the back burner. And they have no meaning except as you see your dream fulfilled in Christ and through Christ. Of course, these things will make your life easier. Nobody is saying that. But don't depend on your happiness or anything earthly, Brothers and sisters, there's one little word which still needs to be looked at here. Answered 30 speaks about faith, about true faith. Only those who have a true faith must find in Christ all that is necessary for their salvation. That, brothers and sisters, boys and girls, is part, is your part in your salvation. But faith is not something that you can add as a credit to your account. Faith is merely the instrument through which you acquire salvation. It's like that rope that you throw to drowning man. Without that rope, you would not be saved. But it isn't the rope that saves you, it is the person that pulls you in who saves you. And the same thing is true of Jesus Christ. He saves you, He alone. Oh, sure, he uses the instrument of faith to save you. He can also do it without. But that's all. It's only a tool that he uses for your salvation. Ultimately, we have nothing to contribute to our salvation. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9. He says, for by grace you have been saved. Through faith. And and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works. So that no one may boast. You must believe that Christ has saved you. And that he continues to do that. For he continues to intercede for you and for me with the Father. He is your advocate don't need a saint for that. What an insult to God to think that he does not have the love or the power or the will to save us from our sins. Brothers and sisters, he's eager to save us. And that is why Christ, who is both man and God, pleads your cause. Paul says to Timothy, for there is one God, and one mediator between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as the ransom for all men. One mediator. Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, there's only one Savior. He's our only Savior. But he's also our complete Savior. Nothing more needs to be said. He is the only ground of your salvation. So boast in that name alone. Do that day, okay? this week. Don't boast in yourself. The honor and glory God alone. Amen.